You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Good morning, everybody. All right, so I have a little test for you today. We're going to see how well you do. These are things that parents commonly said to kids, at least they did in my generation, but of course, my generation got it right. So we let most of these go, right? Let's just see if you can finish the sentence. You ready? Here we go. Don't look at me with those eyes, right? It's usually like a puppy dog eyes, really sad, but it always begs the question, well, what else am I supposed to use to look at you with, mother? All right. If you keep making that face, it'll freeze that way. I have no idea where that came from. The only thing I can figure is parents are trying to find a way to save us from wrinkles. So anyway, if you want to act like a child, I'll treat you like one. By the way, how else do you expect a child to act? I'm just, just checking, right? Now you're doing good because you stopped saying these after your parents said them to you, correct? There was this meme going around Facebook that somebody shared. It said something about the hardest part about disciplining our kids is trying to discipline the you out of them. Yeah, <clears throat> it's my wife. All right, so quiet down. I can't. Hear myself think. Yes, every parent has said this one. There's nothing wrong with that one. <clears throat> and then, by the way, that usually leads you to that special little game called the quiet game, right? It does not work unless you incentivize that puppy. Like, I will buy you a car for whoever lasts the longest. <laughs> you just don't tell them it's like, you know, a toy car. All right. <clears throat> if all of your friends jumped off a bridge... Would you jump too? By the way, if you have three little boys, the answer is yes. Don't try this one. I'll just save you some stress now, all right? Shut the door, were you? Born in a barn. I don't get that one. I, I never grew up on a farm, I, so I don't get it. But somebody in the first service today told me it's because you leave barn doors open. I'm like, well, there you go. I, my, my dad would say that, you know, especially like the fridge door, and be like, uh, no, dad, you were there, I think, right? Do you have something to tell me? Here we go. When you have kids, I hope they turn out. <laughs> Apparently, a lot of your parents said that one. And how'd it work? It's the worst curse of all time. But here's the best. Anybody who's ever had kids. When I was a kid, I absolutely guaranteed I was never going to say this. And then I had kids. And so when you tell your children to do something and they look at you and they say, why, your response is, see, and you thought you weren't going to turn out just like your parents, didn't you? Now, the reason I go through that list is, first of all, it's fun. But second of all, today we're looking at a text in Luke chapter 6. And in this text, Jesus preaches uh, something called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the way to look at this sermon is that Jesus probably often preached this sermon. And so if you don't know this about preachers, like if somebody calls me and says, hey, will you come preach at our church? Usually I say, yeah, what's the theme? And then regardless of what they give me, I go back and find something that I did that was really good. And I try to change it a little to fit the theme because it's easier than starting from scratch. And Jesus probably did the same thing. He probably had this sermon that he preached over and over and over and over and over again. So there were probably unique differences depending on where he was and who he was talking to, what was going on in the moment, the point he was trying to make. So if you take Luke 6 and what we call the Sermon on the Mount and you overlay it with Matthew, say 5 and 6, and that Sermon on the Mount, there are unique differences. 
They're very similar, but they are unique differences. And we're going to look today at Luke's version of that. So there may be some things that are different. And as we go through this, I'll point out some things along the way. Now, for those of you who are visiting with us today, welcome. We're so glad you're here. And um, you'll quickly find out I'm not as funny as I think I am. See, point taken. So, but the rest of what I have to share today, I hope is very helpful. So I'll bring you up to speed real quick. As we've been watching the life of Jesus through the book of Luke, what we saw last week and earlier in Luke 6 is that Jesus lets everybody know this important little phrase. He is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath was a day set aside by God, a religious day, <clears throat> and we're told that it's a day of rest and a day that they worshiped. And we also know that God set the Sabbath aside in order to give people margin to do good things. But when Jesus said that he was Lord of the Sabbath, basically what he's saying is, I am God of the day that God set aside. So that would give Jesus authority. Does that make sense? In other words, Jesus was saying, I am God, which is something we all have to wrestle with. Is Jesus who Jesus said he is? Because it's easy to cherry pick things Jesus said and say, ooh, I like that one, I agree with that. Ooh, that one sounds good, let's do that one. Let's put that one on Facebook. There are gonna be verses today, probably, although I joked about it last service, probably nobody's gonna put it on Facebook. Now, somebody just to prove me wrong will end up putting it on Facebook. But for the most part, today's message is kind of upside down backwards from the way most of us think about the world. So let's jump in now. Luke chapter six, verse 12. Here we go. One of those days, Jesus went out on a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Now, there's a lot of little bits of wisdom to stick in here, and I'm ADHD, so I'll add them in, and then we'll go right back to what you were previously viewing. But in this little nugget here, Luke just gave you a lot. So number one, there are many, many disciples. Uh, later on in Luke, around Luke 9 to 10, um, we see that there are 72 disciples. We don't know how many are here, but Jesus considered prayer a real powerful thing. So when he, it was time to choose who would be those closest to him, he stayed up all night long. That's important for a lot of different reasons. And maybe if you're facing something really big and important, maybe you need to insert prayer into that. And maybe if it takes you all night long, make it something where you're knocking on heaven's door looking for wisdom. Now, in addition to that, we also know that Jesus is choosing 12, and he's making the disciples, but also apostles. Now, we sometimes will refer to certain people as apostolic leaders, meaning that they are leaders of leaders, it's just a high, high, high capacity leader. However, in this context, that's not what that means. What this means is literally an, an apostle was somebody who was with Jesus, they were one of these originals, and they saw the resurrected Jesus. So one of these 12 actually doesn't make the cut, a guy named Judas Iscariot. He hangs himself after betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He hangs himself before Jesus can forgive him, and he never gets to see the end of his own story. And so he's not an apostle. However, the apostle Paul is considered an apostle because not only did he see Jesus according to his own story on the Damascus road when Jesus shined down the light from heaven, but he also was taught by Jesus according to Paul's own testimony. So therefore, he fits as an apostle. You're like, what does that have to do with any of this? Well, it has a lot to do with it because these books that we have, like Luke, we know that Luke traveled with Peter and Luke traveled with Paul and that Luke did a lot of research, probably spent some time interviewing Mary, and so he literally talked to Peter, Paul, and Mary. Can you imagine that? And like <laughs> later wrote a song. And I'm joking about that. I made that part up. But 
He did a ton of research. In fact, go back later and read Luke chapter one, the very first few verses, and he's writing this book called Luke to a guy named Theophilus, and he tells him, I have looked into these things. Famous historians throughout history who sought out to prove Luke as a poor historian to discredit him end up coming to the opposite conclusions. After studying and looking into what he wrote about, they come to the conclusion that Luke was an A-plus historian. He was an historian and a scholar of the best kind. So we get this because those men passed the story on, and Luke, who wasn't one of those men, wrote it down for you. Now, look at verse 17. He went down with them, the them as these disciples, the ones he chose and the ones who were still following, and he stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, probably not all of them, but a big number, and a great number of people. So this could have been hundreds or thousands of people are coming near to Jesus. And the question is why? Well, let's keep reading. And they came from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Why did people want to be near Jesus? And this is the very simple thing. It's really, really, really easy. Because he loved them. See, when you start to talk about rules in your house, right? Your children can obey you because you're bigger and stronger than them, at least for a season, and you, have to, you can force them to obey you, but you cannot force them to love you. But if you love them, they will love you back. What Jesus is trying to do is illustrate the love of God, first by saying, look, God created Sabbath to serve you, to protect you, to give you margin to be good and to do good things, but now he's showing them God loves you. By using his hands to heal people and to touch people, people just want to get close to him. And see, this is a little adage then. So like for all of you who are parents, let's take this one with you. You want to be Jesus in your home? Rules without relationship creates rebellion. Rules without relationship creates rebellion. And what that means is Jesus is going out of his way not just to say, and my kingdom is going to look like this, it's going to look like this, you're going to act like this, you're going to do this. And if you don't, here's bad stuff that's going to happen. Instead, he says, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. If you want to follow after me, here's how you are to live. Make sense? So then we get into it. But as we get into what we call the Beatitudes, and the reason we call them the Beatitudes is because it's the attitude you ought to be. You ought to be this attitude. You ought to think about the world in this way. What you need to know is what Jesus says next is literally upside down. In fact, a guy named N.T. Wright, he's a scholar. He wrote a book called Luke for Everyone. It's a really accessible book that's kind of walking through the book of Luke. Highly recommend it. He says this. This is an upside down code, or perhaps Jesus might have said a right way up code instead of an upside down one that people have been following. God is doing something quite new. He is fulfilling his promises at last. And this will mean good news for all the people who haven't had any for a long time. The poor, the hungry, those who weep, those who are hated, blessings on them. Not that there's anything virtuous about being poor or hungry in itself, but when injustice is reigning, the world will have to be turned once more the right way for God's justice and kingdom to come to birth. See, Jesus is bringing about something new. And since he is God in the flesh, he is going to reign as king over his kingdom. 
But he wants everybody to know this will be a kingdom of power, but the power is not going to look like you thought it would look. And this is crucial because if you don't get what comes next, then you may live your life in a completely different fashion. And you might find yourself frustrated at every turn at how things aren't working the way you thought they would. You might even get mad at God and blame him that things aren't turning out the way you always thought that they would. But Jesus is doing something new. In fact, Jesus actually says at one point, you can't put new wine in old wineskins. And what that means is they would literally have these skins and they put wine in them. And as the wine continued to ferment, it would expand the skins, which is fine. But when you dumped out that old wine, if you were to put new wine in there, the old wine skin couldn't hold it. And so as it started expanding, it would already be worn out and it would burst open. And Jesus is simply saying, see, you can't do that with what I'm bringing to you. What I'm bringing to you is a new way of living and seeing the world. It is a way based around love, which is why Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. It is not hard to find the word love in the Old Testament or in the Old Covenant. It's all over in there. In fact, Jesus takes many of his teachings right out of there, which leads you to go, well, then how is this new? And Jesus says, because the way that I love is not the way the world loves. The way that I give is not the way the world gives. The way that I forgive is not the way that the world forgives. The way I see power is not the way the world sees power. The way I see resources is not the way the world sees resources. And then he goes, and in Luke chapter 6, verse 20, he says, looking at his disciples, again, There's tons of people there. He's healing them. They're all trying to touch him. And he looks right at the disciples, primarily the 12. And he says to them, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Does that sound backwards from anybody else? How many of you, when you were coming up through school, your parents looked at you and said, here's your goal for life. Be as poor as you can be. You will be so blessed, you won't even know what to do with yourself. Does that sound like about what you tell your kids? Or was it more like, you better get a good, good, good grade so you can get some scholarships, so you can go to college, so you can get a degree, so you can get a good job. Which nowadays we change to, so you can get a degree that'll be absolutely worthless and hopefully find a good job. But anyway, you would never say that, but Jesus said that, why? Well, first of all, you have to understand the context. See, we have to be very careful when we're reading Jesus' words to put them together with all of Jesus' words, Okay. And all of the others who taught more about what Jesus is saying and extrapolated on it. Guys like Paul or John or James. So see, there's this dangerous teaching today that exists in the, especially the American church, but it's made its way to the ends of the earth. And we call it the prosperity gospel. And in a nutshell, the prosperity gospel says if you believe in God, and oh, by the way, especially if you give money to this person or this ministry, then God will make you healthy, rich, and wise. Except for, have you ever noticed that the people getting the money seem to get rich, and the people giving the money don't always seem to get rich? So it leaves you to wonder, like, well, what's wrong? And to which we're told, well, they didn't have enough faith. It seems like a pretty jacked up system, because it is. And Jesus flies in the face of that teaching. Jesus often went around, had no place to lay his head. He had no place. He literally says, foxes have dens, birds have nests, the son of man. In other words, that's what he called himself. I have no place to lay in my own head. So if having faith in Jesus meant getting rich, then why didn't Jesus get rich? It cost him his life. He died with nothing because it was never about that. 
So if you have any mistaken belief or idea, if you have ever heard a preacher botch the gospel or a New Testament teaching and say, oh yeah, if you just give money to this, you're gonna get rich. No, 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 that is not at all the teaching. But you know what? There's also a false teaching on the opposite extreme that's called the poverty gospel. And it says something like this. If you have nothing at all, you will be more blessed by God, if not in this life, than in the life to come. And they, again, extrapolate one story where Jesus looks at a rich young man and says, hey, if you'll sell everything you have and give it to the poor, come follow me. Well, the point, as virtually every scholar or theologian in the world will tell you, is this man loved his money and he loved his resources. And he thought that he was good with God. He thought he was obeying all the laws of the Old Testament, but he wasn't. And Jesus was exposing him in love and saying, look, you're not who you say that you are. But if you want to follow me, follow me. Now, the best way to put together what Jesus really says or what the Bible really means is you grab everything you can find in the New Testament and you say, okay, what do I see here? What do I see there? Well, if we do that, we come to certain conclusions. So for instance, one of the conclusions we can come to is when people meet Jesus, it radically changed their life. When Matthew or Levi, who wrote the book of Matthew, he's got the same name, Levi and Matthew, when he came to Jesus, he left his tax collecting booth. He said, you know what? I don't care about money or power anymore. I care about following this man. When James, John, Peter, and Andrew, they were all fishermen. They both had businesses together, two sets of brothers. And when they met Jesus, they left their boats full of fish one day, as we read about already, and they followed him. John the Baptist, when he came to, to perform the work that Jesus called him to do, he went off in the desert, he started eating locusts and wearing uncomfortable clothing. Don't worry, that's a pretty rare thing that God calls somebody to, that probably won't be your calling, but it showed that he was willing to give up a lot in order to follow Jesus. When we get later into Paul's teaching, Paul tells us, those of you who are rich should do more and give more. He doesn't say, give everything you have away. He says, but you should probably do more and you should probably give more. The point that Jesus is trying to make is simply this. It's not that you're better if you're rich or you're better if you're poor or if you follow Jesus, you'll get rich or if you really wanna be with Jesus, you'll be poor. The real point that he's trying to make is simply this. You are blessed to get in the kingdom. All of us, rich, poor, or somewhere in between, you are blessed to get in the kingdom. Why? Okay, so ancient Palestine was a little bit different than us today. But if you go back to that first century, see, if you have no money and you have no resources, you have no access, you have no power, you have no influence, you literally can't change the scenario. You've got no option and nobody's going to listen to you because you are insignificant. Jesus says, but when you come to my kingdom, though you may be insignificant here, you are blessed. The word blessed, which we're going to see over and over and over again, is the word makarios. Hey! One and a two and a three makarios. Anybody? No? All right. Well, I told you it wasn't funny. Anyway, makarios literally means happy, fortunate, or well off. So it might be hard to look at somebody, so the poor in the first century Palestine, when Jesus teaches the disciples to pray, and he says, pray this way. Give us today our daily bread. That was real. And I can't relate with that. And I don't know about you. I don't consider myself poor by any stretch of anybody's imagination. There was a season where we were very tight on money. And I, like, and I said to my wife, look, let's not dip into savings, which we have, which means alone we're not poor. Let's not put it on the credit card, which means we have access to money that's not even our own, which these people had neither. 
I said, let's just eat out of our pantry until the next paycheck. And we were fine. You know what I'm talking about? Like when your garbage disposal and your trash can eats better than most of the world, you got resources, okay? But if you literally have to trust God for your daily bread, I don't know where my next meal is going to come from. God, I need you to provide today. And God shows up. He's saying something. It doesn't matter how rich you are, how powerful you are, how, how whatever, you matter. You matter. And in my kingdom, you will matter. And you are blessed to get in because you're not gonna buy your way in. You're not gonna earn your way in. You're not gonna literally trade yourself as a slave to get in, which often happened in the first century. We had big debt. You'd surrender yourself at future generations to be a slave for somebody until you paid off the debt. No, see, all you're gonna do in my kingdom is get in. And you get in by faith. That's huge. But what you're gonna find as we go through this is Jesus uses a typical Hebrew teaching tool to communicate. So what we see is there are four woes or four blessings followed by four woes. And so, but the way you need to look at this is it goes like A1, B1, C1, D1, and then it goes A2, B2, C2, D2. And so if you take those verses and you go like this, you find that A1 lines up with A2 and so on and so on down the line. And so if we jump down towards that second piece, there's a woe that follows the blessing. So the makarios is, hey, if you don't have very many resources, your perspective about the world is you may not be very significant. You may be left out, but not in my kingdom. In my kingdom, there's a place for you. But then he says this, look at Luke chapter six, verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Well, what does that mean? A woe is a warning. Look out, be careful, be cautious. You're standing on dangerous ground. Interesting, later in, in this chapter, he will actually talk about that, about building a house on sand and when the waves come and the storms rise and all of a sudden it's not built on a solid foundation, the whole thing falls apart and everything falls apart with it. The point is he's saying, what kind of foundation are you standing on? So when you put these two things together, what you see is in my kingdom, it will be different. In my kingdom, everybody's important. In my kingdom, everybody's special. But be careful because if you have lots of resources and you don't understand how important those people are in my kingdom, then what's gonna happen is when you stand before your heavenly father on judgment day, he's gonna look at you and say, you've already received all of your comfort. It's a warning to us, not just to them, to look at our lives and say, God, how am I partnering with you and what you are doing around the world? All right, second one, Luke chapter six, verse 21 Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. There's two of them in this verse. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. What kind of hunger are we talking about? Matthew clarifies that he's talking about spiritually hungering. Well, that's absolutely true. Luke doesn't clarify that. So again, I believe that Luke is recording a sermon that Jesus preached in many different places. He may not have preached it the same way every single time. And I think the answer is not either or. The answer is yes. In other words, if what you've been looking for is real purity, real morality, what is really authentic and knowable and true and trustworthy and peace-giving and life-giving and joy-giving and freedom-giving, it's found here in Jesus. And blessed are you to come to Jesus to get it. 
But more than that, if you are hungry now, like we just talked about, and you don't have access to resources, blessed are you, for you will be satisfied when? When? Okay, question. When will God make good on all these promises? Maybe a better way to ask it is this. When do you enter the kingdom of God? And the natural response, at least my response when I was in Bible college was, when you die. That doesn't sound like a very good promise. You're gonna be poor and hungry and miserable, but don't worry, one day I'll come back and make everything good. Well, I mean, that sounds excellent, but isn't there a way to do it now? You're God. And some of you have wrestled with that, right? And the simple answer is yes. And it's not either or, it's yes. And that gets even clearer in the second blessing. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Well, there are a lot of reasons why we might weep, right? Maybe a spouse cheats. Maybe you lose your job and everything seems like there's no answer. Perhaps somebody in your family is sick and dying or has already passed, and you're just weeping. Two things here. <clears throat> Number one, when you have the perspective that this world is not the end game, it changes the way that you see the world. For those of you who are visiting, maybe watching online, my mom may even be watching online. Love you, mom. Um, my mom is dying. She's been diagnosed with something that has no cure, and we're still waiting for more tests to tell us whether she might have six months or might have 10 years. And the truth is, the doctors don't know. They can ballpark it, but they don't know. And it makes it hard. Like, every phone call, every text message, every time I see her, is this it? But the thing is, even though I am going to weep bitterly when the day comes, I'm going to have an unbelievable amount of joy because I have no concerns about where my mom is going. This isn't a pipe dream for me. You need to know that. This isn't a shot in the dark. Oh, maybe, maybe, you know, afterwards something cool will happen. You can call it nirvana or bliss or heaven or whatever you want. Like, no, I am absolutely 100% confident. How do I know? Because my Savior died on a cross and he rose from the dead and he said, there's your guarantee. And so those who are weeping now, they know that ultimately everything will be made good. But see, it's not just about then. It's about now. That's why in Matthew's version, in Matthew 5 and 6, he says, so do not worry about what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will wear. See, the people of this world think about those things. They stress about those things. But you, you have a heavenly father. Those of you who believe in God, you have him looking out for you. And he promises, look, if I make sure the flowers in the fields are colorful and beautiful, don't you think I could take care of you too? And the answer is, but of course you can. And that's the point. It's not just then, it's now. We'll put it all together. How do I put it all together? Look at the woe. Look at verse 25 now. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Go ahead, put that as a meme on Facebook later and see how many likes you get, all right? That's kind of depressing, Jesus. Where's the rah, rah, sis, boom, bah, God's awesome kind of stuff? But see, you gotta get what he's saying. Put the two together, put the two together. Why would I be well-fed now and hungry later? Well, spiritually, physically. 
So many of the Pharisees who were giving Jesus a hard time, they believe that they're good enough to get to heaven because they're good people. And Jesus is saying, <clears throat> excuse me, to everybody, nobody gets in heaven because they're good. Nobody. The only way you get to heaven is because you're forgiven. And so if you are well-fed now, spiritually, you think you got all the answers, you think you got it all together, you will go hungry because you will miss out on me, Jesus is saying. You will miss out on the most important thing that you need, a savior for your sins. But if you don't think you have any sins, if you don't think yours are great enough to need a savior, you're gonna be hungry later. Now physically, how is this possible? Woe to you who are well and fed now, for you will go hungry. See, there's gonna come an accountability day for all of us. We're all gonna stand before God our Father and give an account for what he gave us. And he'll look at us and say, what did you do with what I gave you? Matthew expands on this in Matthew 25, and he tells a story, and he says, and on that day, people will be split into two different categories. It'll be the sheep on one side and the goats on the others, and one of them's good and one's bad. And basically what he says is the people will look at him and say, but when were we ever given an opportunity to do anything for you? And he'll say, when I was naked, did you clothe me? When I was hungry, did you feed me? When I needed a place, did you give me a place to lay my head? When I was thirsty, did you give me something to drink? When you saw my need, did you take care of me? Because for whatever you do, for the least of these brothers of mine, you've done for me. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. For those of you who think everything that God has given you is for you to spend on yourself, you are totally missing out on why he's blessed you. My last pastor, you say it like this, you have been blessed to be a blessing. That's why you have what you have. And then go on here. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Why would we mourn and weep? Well, Because one day you will realize that you've spent your whole life for you. And you will be heartbroken. Well, what do I do about that? Well, you become heartbroken now. In fact, James is dealing with this. James is the half-brother of Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. They share the same mother. Both have Mary as their mama, <clears throat> but Jesus' father is God the Father, and James' father is, J is Joseph the carpenter. And so James, I love that Andy Stanley said this once. He said, if you could convince your brother that you're God, then, then that's a pretty convincing proof, right? Because good luck trying to convince your sibling that you're God. It ain't gonna happen. But Jesus did convince James. And James becomes the leader in the church and he writes a book called the book of James. We named it easily so you'd know who he was. James chapter four, verse seven, it says this. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and God will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. And again, ain't nobody creating a t-shirt with that on it, are they? Well, except for that guy downtown with a megaphone standing on a box yelling at everybody. But nobody else is wearing that tomorrow. You're like, James, come, come on, man. You need like a Xanax or something. Like, can't you get yourself a Starbucks and cheer up, buddy? No, James is broken. Because he's looking at the state of the church, and here's what the church is doing in the book of James. They're, take, they're bringing in people, so they mostly meet in houses, and they're taking the nicest, most comfortable chairs, and they're giving them to the rich and the powerful and the wealthy and the prominent, and they're saying, hey, oh, 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 you're in my house? Woohoo! You sit here. But then the poor walk in, and they say, eh, you can sit there on the dirt floor. And they're giving the best seats to the rich and powerful, the worst seats to those who are struggling, and James like, you ought to be broken. Woe to you. How dare you? When Jesus came and walked among them and healed them and loved them and you treat this thing called faith as if it's something for you, 
instead of something through you. See, in the first blessing and woe, we learned that we are all blessed to be in the kingdom. In the second blessing and woe, we learned that we are blessed by others in the kingdom. And what that means is what God is trying to build is a system whereby those who have more take care of those who don't. It, Paul builds on this when he says, I think it's in 2 Corinthians 7, I think. He says, those of you who are rich should give more and do more. And then he goes on and he says, look, God will provide all that you need so that you have plenty to both meet your need and meet the needs of others. So don't be worried about being generous. Just meet the needs of others. And when you do that, Jesus says, it's better to give than to receive. Do you want to know how to truly find makarios? You become like your heavenly father. You become more selfless than selfish. A great book, by the way. You can find this on Google. I think the whole book is on there on the internet. I highly recommend it. Basically, this book goes through the beginning of the Bible, Genesis, all the way to Revelation. It takes some of the hardest statements in the entire Bible and says, look, here's the best way to read these. A really helpful resource. But this says this. The hard sayings of the Bible says, if you are deeply invested in the values of your culture, you cannot have enough energy left over to have a similar investment in God and in his values. If you are invested in God, you do not at the same time have the energy left to value what the surrounding culture values. We display what we value in our use of time and energy and money. All are in limited supply. All are placed at the disposal of what one is emotionally invested in. If these treasures go to one place, they cannot go to another place. Blessing three. And this one's pretty fast. Luke 6, verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you. Does that sound right? Oh, I just feel so blessed today. Why? Everybody hates me. But they got to hate you for the right reasons. Peter talks about that later. He says, look, if somebody's mad at you or disciplines you or punishes you because you did something wrong, you deserved it. But if a man does something good and he gets punished, God's watching. Here's what it says. Blessed are you people hate you when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the son of man. That's the phrase Jesus uses for himself because of me, in other words. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because your great is your reward in heaven for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. What in the world is he saying? This one's actually probably the easiest of them all to get. If you come to faith in Jesus Christ and you realize that there is not going to be a lot of popularity for you, your spouse might disagree, your parents might disagree, your children might disagree, your neighbors might think you're idiots, your boss, whatever it is, Praise be to God for your faithfulness to him. God is watching and he will reward you. In fact, Jesus actually builds on this later in Luke chapter 18. He says this, truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. In other words, if you coming to faith in Jesus means life isn't going to be easy, praise God. But wait a minute, prosperity gospel says, if I just give money, I'm gonna get healthy, rich, and wise. Jesus says, it probably is gonna go the other way. If you align your heart and your life with God's kingdom, it might actually get harder for you. And people probably aren't gonna like it a whole lot. Why? Because this message is radical. It is upside down. We evaluate the effectiveness 
of any religious system based off the teachings of that system. And what Jesus just says, he sets the groundwork. It's most likely one of his first public sermons. It's the sermon he preached the most that said, if you want to be in my kingdom, here's what it's going to look like. Want in? Now, on the surface level, don't you want to be a part of a kingdom where you know everybody's going to be cared for and loved? I do. Because there might come a day where I'm the guy that needs the caring for and not just the guy who does the caring. And when that day comes, I know the church is always going to show up for me. Because they always do. And I know for some of you, that might not be your story. That might not be your experience. You might have been deeply wounded or hurt in a church. I wish I knew that story and I could just sit with you. But let me just say, and I know this isn't worth much, but I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you ended up in a hurtful, judgmental, condemning, whatever it was, church. But if you just give this group of people a chance, you'll find we're not like that. Now, don't get me wrong. I speak all kinds of annoying truths that are intended to irritate people and make them wrestle with God. And then sometimes I have to go wrestle with them myself and find out that I'm wrong and repent. And sometimes I do it publicly and it's weird and ugly and people are like, oh, that's why we love you, Pastor, because I'm so jacked up, I think is what they mean. But the truth is, this is a really good group of people. And they love Jesus. And they're doing their best to live it out. Jesus warns us, though, in Luke 6, 26, woe to you when everyone speaks well of you because that's how their ancestors treated the false prophets. False prophets were people who'd come along and lie. They would often lie to kings. Oh, yeah, God's going to get this, this, this other group. You go get them. Go ahead. God's with you. And like Jeremiah or others would come up and be like, that's not from God. And the kings didn't want to hear that. Nobody wants to hear it. That's not from God. Especially when it's like, oh, yeah, you're going to get healthy, rich, and wise. No, that's not the message God's giving you. Oh, no, I think I like that message better. I want to hear that one. But see, this is how they treated the false prophets. They ignored the truth because they liked that message better. So here's the thing. If you always have everybody around you telling you how great and awesome you are and that's all they ever tell you, be careful. Whoa, watch out. Why? Because people don't always tell the truth. And you know that if you're spending all of your time and energy trying to make everybody else happy, that's exhausting. And by the way, good luck. You ever try to be a president? I know you haven't, but come on, when was the last time we were happy with a president? It's not an easy job. Neither is being a teacher, a pastor, a parent, a child, a lawyer, an attorney, a businessman, a wife, a husband, father, a mother. It's not easy, is it? See, your job is to make people around you happy, Macarillos. Your job is to please one person, God your father. And you live under his gaze every day. So that's why you are blessed not just to be in the kingdom. You're blessed by others in the kingdom, but you're also blessed to represent the kingdom. You get to live out God in front of everybody else every day of your life. Which leads us to this last really irritating question that I want to leave you with. How you doing? Now, come on, nobody else in here, maybe your spouse, but nobody else in here knows the answer to that. You could put on a happy face and walk out the door. 
But in your heart, how are you doing? Does your life reflect the kingdom that God is building on earth? And if not, what do you need to do? And do you need to grieve and mourn and wail that you have been blinded by this world? Because if so, man, you're not alone. It's nothing to be ashamed of, of coming to the recognition that what you've been living is a lie or a fake. Because what we find when we turn is what James already told us, what you will find is when you draw near to God, God will draw near to you. And those who humble themselves, God will lift up. But those who lift themselves up, God has to humble. I'd rather he be lifting than humbling. Francis Chan says this, and I'll close with this, in the book Crazy Love. Our greatest fear should not be a failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. With that, um, I just want to throw out this encouragement to you. One of the ways that we here at Kingsway take part in God's kingdom on the world is we serve each other and we serve the world. If this message is striking you and you just want to know one way to step into the mess, I just want to encourage you to grab the serve card that's in front of you and put your name on it. Jump into one of the ministries here of Kingsway. Maybe go serve somewhere around the world. You can actually just turn this in. Say, you know what, I want to go on a mission trip and, and be more selfless. Maybe it has to do with you adopting a child from a broken home. You know, if, if you're going to say you're pro-life, maybe do something about protecting life after it's out of the womb. If if maybe you have a job and you feel God is calling you to leave that job and go into full-time ministry or mission work, let's do it. Maybe you and your family need a place to serve and you need to go to the event corner at the end of the service today and sign up to go to Wheeler and say, you know what, we're gonna come and help. Whatever it is, respond to the Spirit as he moves you, but just don't be somebody who gets to the last day and says, oh man, I wasted my life. I'm gonna pray over you. And um, then we're just gonna sing and ask God to stir in our hearts and do this thing that he does. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. Messages like this are not really exciting. I kind of wish our guests would pick like last week or next week to come. But God, I know this. You lead all people in the way that is perfect for them. So God, our guests who are here today or watching online or just happen to grab this message and they're, they're listening to it, Father, I know that you have a message for them. And so, God, sometimes we all just need the truth spoke to us, even when it's uncomfortable and we don't want to hear it. So, Father, I pray you would stir in our hearts, stir in this place, break the death grip that we sometimes have on stuff and possessions and money and time, and help us to be more like Jesus. God, can, can we just imagine a world for a minute where this was the reality, where this is what it looked like? Oh, God. Oh, God, I want to be in that world. And I know one day you're going to come back and bring that world to be. I know one day, Jesus, you're going to return and initiate and inaugurate the true heaven. But God, while we're living in the land of the already and also the not yet, God, give us the strength to follow you faithfully, even though it's hard sometimes. Help us to not quit, God, to get more bold, more radically generous in our lives. And God, may we see great fruit from it. We love you and we praise you. And all God's people said,